The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peters show and the continued adventures of the summer of 93 F30. It's the summer of 93 F30. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of 1993. And as always with me from 82 to 93, it's Scott Mendelson and me. He's from the rap. And this time we have an interloper. And that interloper is from We Live Entertainment Variety, Why So Blue, host of Out Now with Aaron and Abe. It's Aaron Newerth. 93, summer of 93. It is a going, and the films we are showing are... Okay. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Today we're discussing... Give me a second. Four films uh, that opened uh, July 30th to August 1st weekend. So we're ending July and beginning the August, rounding into the final turn for final month. Um, It's the final countdown. We're leaving together, together. That's the only lyric I know. And something. Ah, fuck it. See, the point is that they've heard us weekly, so they're used to this. This yes. is a highlight for them. Like it's downhill after we do well, this. There's less singing in this this particular state, so we need to up the singing in the last. There's, there's not anything. There's a lot of yeah. singing. So because of the fucking movie that we have to talk about, <laughs> I just mean in the podcast. I think there was we more used to see a, musical numbers in the '80s one. Yeah, they were going to make a so soundtrack step it up, for the last words. one. Yeah. Oh, I we, assume Brandon's editing all these where the music just just piled on. Right, that works. But in all in all fairness, Scott, we had musicals that last summer. There are like that is true. None here um, but, until now. <laughs> oh boy. Yes. But first, as always, uh, we start with the news. When I wake up, don't you know I'm gonna be. Gonna be the man who brings the news to you. The mafia suspected in a car bomb attack last night in a swank residential neighborhood of Rome. At least 23 people were hurt there, 50 cars destroyed, and a building badly damaged. Police say a television talk show host who was passing by at the time may have been the target. Who died? All right. Well, if you want to start there, no. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Scott, if you, since you were wondering, on July 6th, a Boeing 737-500 crashes into South Korea and 66 are killed. Now who's the asshole? <laughs> Smash that subscribe button! Oh, yep. Uh, same day. The first of four photos of Mars is taken by the Mars Observer just under oh. a month before the spacecraft failed in flight. Okay. Hello, Mars. On July 27th, Javier Sotomayor jumps a world record of 2.45 meters high. 
Like Scott, Scott did that in high school, though. So, I don't know. Yes. Also on July 27th, uh, the mafia bombs the historical buildings in Rome, Milan, and the Vatican City. Scott, killing five. So, First, first off, there is no mafia. So, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but there is a mafia mama. But judging by her box office, she could not afford to. By this time, you will definitely be able to watch it on VOD. Well, you know, uh, judging by her box office, she did have bombs. So, touche. There we go. And they weren't just car bombs in 1970s Cleveland. If they called it, they called it Cosa Nostra Granny. That might have been more. uh, (laughs) So, uh, July 27th, NBC TV is awarded the 1996 Olympic coverage for. $456 $456 million. And what coverage Which, it was. If I recall, was a bargain in the end. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, on July 29th, Cincinnati Reds pitcher Thomas Browning is arrested for... Take a guess. Aaron. Murder! You're not Aaron. Murder. Scott? <laughs> Arson. Marijuana possession. Oh, that's Earth not... An it was close. You guys are <laughs> marijuana position. Uh, July 29th. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're Robert Mitchum. Hmm. Uh, July 29th. Israeli Court of Appeals overturns five to zero. The conviction of John Demjajuk saying not enough evidence. He is he is uh, the concentration camp Ivan the Terrible. So this guy was in on trial because like, I think you're that guy. And they're like, eh. I don't think so. So I hope that movie of the week's coming though. Yeah. The good news is he's almost certainly dead now. Yes. Uh old July, age. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of something that happens in old age, uh July 29th, Walter Koenig, who played Mr. Chekhov in Star Trek, suffers a mild heart attack. He's still kicking today. I so. like how that's newsworthy. Or I yeah. <laughs> uh July 31st. I'm sure back then his what he thought might be his last words were "fuck you, Shatner." Was, it, was this Chekhov's Just heart attack? It, it wasn't Chekhov's heart attack. It did not come back in the. <laughs> um, on July thirty first, Prince Ronald Ronnie Matubi crowned King of Uganda. Mazel. Yeah. Classic Robbie. Yeah. Uh, okay. On July thirty first, the Allman Brothers Band guitarist Diggy Betts is arrested for Aaron. <laughs> Possession? <laughs> Scott. Arson. Now it is murder? Shoving two cops. Oh, well, good for you. Yes. Uh, on July 31st, Toronto Blue Jays obtained future baseball Hall of Fame. Ricky Henderson. He's in the news. We always have Ricky uh, from Oakland. Them bases. Yes. In exchange for minor leaguers. Steve Carse and Jose Herrera. So uh, good job, A's, because I don't know who the hell those two are, but we all know Ricky <laughs> Henderson. Uh, on August 1st, 14 time, Major League Baseball All-Star Reggie Jackson is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Good. This despite trying to murder the Queen several years earlier. <laughs> hmm. That's uh, a gun joke, right? That's what I'm, that's what I'm Yes. Doing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I hope. Otherwise, it's you know, slander. Like I'm okay with the first one as far as memorizing it. Like I get, I get fuzzier with two and with, sorry, with two, two and a half and thirty three and a. Third. I remember thirty three and three. It was like it's the bomb. 
Yeah. I remember that part. Um, so deaths this week, uh, screenwriter Daniel Fuchs, who wrote The Hard Way, uh, oh. NBA Celtics legend Reggie Lewis, uh, oh. Daniel Murick, an American saxophonist who did the song If Leaving Me Is Easy, One More Night. Uh, he's fatally shot by police during a narcotics investigation at 53. Ooh. Uh, John Castrios, the first... And why is this guy? Who's John Castrios? Well, he was the first murder in Washington, New Hampshire in 200 years. You gotta erase that chalkboard. Reggie Lewis, because I, I had to look this up, he died at the age of 27 having a cardiac arrest on the basketball court during a game, during a yep. practice. Um, no, it had nothing to do with any of his quote-unquote behavior. He just kind of is one of those unlucky bastards that had a heart defect. Gotcha. You know, John Rittard. Birthdays this week, uh, rapper Stormzy, Gossip Girl star Taylor Momsen, uh, golfer Jordan Spieth, and NFL quarterback Dak Prescott, all born this week in 1993. I didn't realize Spieth was that young. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was just in the Masters. Little baby Spieth. So, yeah, there we are. And uh, so we'll move on to our first movie, Tom and Jerry, colon, the movie. After 50 years, Tom and Jerry are coming to theaters in their very first major motion picture. Why not share the fun with your family? It's Tom and Jerry, the movie, rated G. Now play. Directed by Phil Roman, written by Dennis Marks, William Hanna, and Joseph Barbera, starring Richard Kind, Dana Hill, Andy McAfee, Rip Taylor, and Henry Gibson. Gibson. Cat and mouse duo Tom and Jerry reluctantly work together to save a young girl from her evil aunt. All right, Aaron, tell us about Tom and Jerry. Well, I I, I admired that it had an opening credit scene, which is always fun for me in animated movies, especially yes. like this, where it's like, oh, I really want us to know. Right. Uh, my my eyes did light up when Richard Kind entered the frame. Um, I'm like I, for, I completely forgot that he. So I I think I've seen this movie like I don't know in full, but I, I know I've seen parts of it because I can specifically remember the part where they're like, "How can you ever talk before?" And he's like, "Well, I just never had anything to say." And I'm like, "Oh, screenwriting team, you guys." Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, this ain't continuity. But yeah, Richard Richard Kind popped in there, and I'm like, oh great, that's fun. I had just seen Bo is Afraid, so it's like, oh, I got plenty of kind in my life right now, and it's always nice to get kind. The um, right kind of kind. Yeah, she's he kind. Of, he, he, brings of, he brings a lot of big kind energy. Um, <laughs> Richard does. Um, is this the only animated film that has to be banned in Tibet? I'm just curious. Uh, oh God! I didn't think <laughs> about the political implications of that. Um, this movie, <laughs> this movie is like this. Well, they same plane in China. This is like bad. It's maybe I guess like a little better than Once Upon a Forest, but it like there's. It's the kind of movie where this could be any other movie, and it would I wouldn't say it'd be better, but it would like make sense to me. But because it's Tom and Jerry, I'm like, so they're talking and they're. <laughs> decidedly not doing any antics that are akin to Tom and Jerry. So what am I watching for 83 minutes? And it's this Mm -hmm. weird, like reluctant buddy comedy with occasional songs that are listenable. Um, There's like nothing going on. That's not a retread of like, you already mentioned the rescuers or 
anything else that's just you know really clever. It's just like, well, they drew this and it looks like the like the old cartoon series, but it doesn't sound or feel or do anything else that inspires you to be like, oh yeah, that's my Tom and Jerry, all right. Like, say what you will about that WB version that came out a couple years ago, um, which is also, you know, bad. Um, wait, wait, wait. You mean the film that saved movie theaters? One, one of six. Show films, some goddamn respect, New one of, one of six huh. films saved movie theaters and was also, I believe, the first simultaneous streaming Mac slash theatrical release. Uh, uh, one of the first. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Little Things did not save theaters. Hold on. Tom and Jerry came out before Little Things, didn't they? No, it was... Uh, uh, I don't think you're February, right. uh, late February. Oh, Jerry was that was a that was a January movie, wasn't it? No, uh, Judah uh, the Last Messiah and uh, Little Things were first, along with Wonder Woman. That's its own can of worms. Fair enough. Well, Wonder Woman's like the that idea, was like, in December, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie, like whatever that movie, <laughs> it's not good either. But at least it's like Tom and Jerry should like not talk and should like constantly be. In a spy versus spy game of one-upsmanship against each other, <laughs> that's something. This movie's just like, what if we didn't do any of that? <laughs> it made this like generic plot um, with other characters that are seemingly upstaging Tom and Jerry any chance they give them to, um, and then I guess they're involved also and they talk. The end. Songs. They go to Tibet for some reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, this movie like. It's almost like there was this other animated movie and they were like, hey, can we erase those two main characters and draw Tom and Jerry there and then just like try to sell this? Because like right right at the beginning, there is a scene literally where they're like, like Jerry talks and then Tom's like, you talked? And they're like, you talked? I'm like, oh no. Oh no, this is not going to go well. And like boredom. Like they were singing. <laughs> there was some guy that was like their answer to like, well, I guess you know Indiana Jones or Launchpad McQuack are popular, and this guy literally was like the human version of Launchpad McQuack drawn, uh, flying this plane. Um, I can't tell. Like it, this was just dull. I will get. I'll say something nice. Foley work was pretty good on this. <laughs> I could hear every line of dialogue. Fuck you, Chris Nolan. Like it was. Did some good sound effects and stuff like that, but this is like dull as shit. Uh, what week is this coming out? Like, this episode? What is this? July? What? This is end of July. 30th-ish. End of July, beginning of August. Okay, so Scott's saying fuck Chris Nolan the weekend that Oppenheimer comes out. Is that what I'm hearing? No, no, we, Oppenheimer no, will have already been out. He'll been out. He's, he's in the he's in the consciousness. Like if yes. everybody's had a, a week mm-hmm. to let that settle I in, better be able to hear that. And here comes Scott it. Medelson trying to trash our show. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like let me tarnish this name really quick just to keep that audience going. There you go. Oh, I, I drove down to Vegas in the middle of a pandemic to see Tenet. I sat in the middle of the biggest IMAX theater in Las Vegas with my hearing aids on full blast, and I still missed 40% of the dialogue. Yeah, I, I mean, saw it. Like, like I, your problems. I saw it in a 70 millimeter uh, IMAX theater uh, with uh, eight other patrons, and uh, I heard it fine. So. Can we just talk, keep talking about Tenet for like 20 minutes instead of Tom and Jerry at the movie? <laughs> Tenet and Jerry. I, I, I would like when, Andrew, when, when, Aaron, uh, when Aaron Taylor Johnson just steps in and it's like, oh man, this guy's like, he's okay in lead roles, but supporting roles like this, yes, give me more of this. Yes, he's so good. <laughs> just like bullet train, just like, yeah. yeah. Kenneth Branagh's accent, impeccable, just like that other episode we did. 
And, <laughs> dude, Elizabeth the Becky in IMAX is just, I mean, she's it's tall. It's why you she need IMAX. She's so fucking tall. It's like crazy. Um, it's the two things. It's the two things that they said are actually to scale when you see them in IMAX cameras is Optimus Prime and Elizabeth the Becky. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's true. But yeah, uh, yeah, this, I was like, at some point, like the first song in here doesn't come for like a while, and I'm like, oh, we have a song, and then I was like, oh, now we have two songs, three. Okay, we are yeah, it really like it builds right away into the songs once they get going. Yeah, once they get going, they start. But I think the first one was like 20 minutes in. Yeah, you get like, your, your. It time. wasn't like we had an intro song to let us know, hey, you're in the middle of a musical. It was just like, oh, this person's singing. Oh, okay, then we're gonna. Have I guess more that's songs. what Sweeney thought should have done. I guess should have yes. held on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that timely Sweeney Todd reference I just made. Scott, why was it that you liked Tom and Jerry so much? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think by default, I actually did prefer this to the live action one a couple years ago, just because I found that one to be incredibly annoying. They can both that. be that way. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, look, don't watch either of them. But I mean, I guess all due respect, save movie theaters, yada yada yada. Um, also, Chloe Moritz in a suit, so you know it's got something going for it. Um, what I found amusing about this film, the film itself is not funny, but every time I tried to imagine this film with not Tom and Jerry but Roadrunner and Coyote, it became even funnier. So you prefer this movie because mm-hmm. you imagined a different movie while you were watching it. That makes yeah. sense. Um, okay. Well, no, no, no. That was just sort of a weird bonus that I was sort of amusing myself to pass the time. Yeah, that's, that's less your painful reason. than putting cigarettes on my arm. That's what you're saying. That makes you prefer this movie to an entirely different movie because of some other third movie. Oh, that's no, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a digression. It's a different It's a different topic. We've moved on. Um, no, I, I mean, this. you guys are right. This is basically a generic you know, adventure cartoon that happens to involve Tom and Jerry plopped in. And it is very funny unintentionally to have a Tom and Jerry story with, you know, perilous rescues, fiery peril, you know, an evil character screaming at a child, your father is dead, which you know are not things you expect to see in a fucking Tom and Jerry movie. Um, it's not even that, you know, this is a dark, serious Tom and Jerry movie. It's just a garden variety assembly line cartoon of that era. It ramps into that too, though, mm-hmm. where it starts out where it's just like, hey, they're fighting and there's a house or whatever. And then they're like, oh, now we're over strays and we get involved in a cartoonishly evil, it's literally a cartoon, yes. but a cartoonishly <laughs> evil plot <laughs> involving, involving evil mothers and what have you. And, and there's another point in the movie, really right toward the end, where they get caught in the fiery peril. It's like, Obviously, you know they're not going to die, but how fucking hysterical would it have been if they died? Like, minus, um, the, minus the fact yeah. that there's no humor in this movie that's yeah. appealing. Uh, it's basically like Beavis and Butthead, where they're just like, they just happen to get involved in this other plot. Right. <laughs> Thomas and Jerry do America. Or do Tibet. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, this this film is, the uh, this is the kind of movie which is which is why people still associate animation with kids flicks. Yeah. Because this is what was standard and expected for a, li- a mainstream theatrical cartoon, even, I mean, up into the, you know, I mean, yes, the Katzenberg Renaissance sort of changed the game on that a little bit. But you were, for every one of those, you were still getting a Fievel Goes West or a Tom and Jerry the movie. So, American Tale is actually not Fievel so much Fievel Goes West. West. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know what's sad? Like, I, I saw this in the theater. And I didn't like it then. And yeah, it was 11 and too cool. But but I remember my mom. Did you get sold out of Rising Sun? 
Eleven's pretty old to be going to the theaters to eat Tom and Jerry, Brandon. Yeah. Well, my, my, sister, my, my sister was like six, so that's probably what happened. I was just there for a summer, and well, guess what? Can't really drive or go anywhere cool. You know what she would have enjoyed even more? Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. Probably. I mean, <laughs> no, the, the, is pretty cool. But we'll talk the, about that later. <laughs> the one other you know, vaguely nice thing I will say is that... What is the first is... nice thing that you said? I'm, uh, I'm okay, for the reason why you prefer this movie to the other one because the other yeah, one I, if you subtract the stuff that doesn't work in the other one you still have the tom and jerry stuff which i think is legit good in that movie that is it, fair it, yeah. it, 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 i just i was so instead of just making it a movie instead of just making it a movie where you know chloe morris plays a befuddled hotel person who tries to do well at her job they like make it stupidly complicated where she like faked her resume and isn't Actually, yeah, no, that, that movie's bad. We've established that movie's yeah, bad. Nobody's the, top, the stuff that's called Tom and Jerry that involves Tom and Jerry. I think that stuff war. I'm like, what is the thing here that you're like, at least it has this? I haven't heard that. What is that thing? <laughs> you're saying it, it, <laughs> this movie has that. <sighs> what do you subtract from this? It's like, well, if you take all this away, at least this part's here. What is that? They, this but they're both terrible. Why are we having this debate? Well, because you, you started off by saying up. you prefer the yeah. other one, or you prefer this. One I expected. One. I think I expected more from the other one. I don't know. Well, maybe because it's. I don't know because I. I still think that maybe <laughs> Tim Story isn't going to pull the football this time. After ride along two, you're like, oh man, he's back again with Tommy. Exactly. Jerry. I think this time he's not going to pull the football, but he always pulls the damn football. Um, I, I should have given up after Shaft, but you know, Shaft for white people. Um, <laughs> but the twenty, the twenty tens Shaft, not the two thousand Shaft. Not Shaft. Well, that one's fucking awesome. We yeah, that one rocks, but not the Tim Story Shaft with too Shaft, too much Shaft to handle as the tagline. Yes, exactly. Uh. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do feel you know by default it is interesting to see the Tom and Jerry characters painted and animated in comparatively bigger budget, lush theatrical animation. With a, a certain depth of of that you're not you know used to in you know the old cartoons, but that's the that nicest be, thing. I like the ambition of the the that 2021 one. And like, yes, we get it. You love the 2021 one. <laughs> I just, I'm not it's okay. What this thing is that you're praising for this movie. I hope I'm this angry for every other review we do today. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron's HBO Max back then was like, hey, since you like Tom and Jerry, you should watch Tom and Jerry <laughs> again. <laughs> We all know that they have it on that very popular MGM Plus. That's that's where all the, Tom and Jerry, the old Tom and Jerry is. A network that exists. Uh, yes, it it does. It has um, a show that got a second season. I'm like, there's a there's a streaming service for this to begin with. Wow, what's the show? It's what show is it? Um, it has um, Harold Paradow, I believe, in it. Oh, oh, Walt. The show. <laughs> But yeah, this is a bear. That's him in the edge. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we've spent way too much time talking around Tom and Jerry yeah. because there's not so, really much to talk about. Two didn't like it and Scott liked it. <laughs> I didn't like it. It's no house of cards. Oh. <laughs> it surely isn't. Which is gonna be really confusing to people who won't like don't watch the entire you know, summer of 93 thing. And the and Tom the, and Jerry fans that tune in for this yeah. one, like finally yeah. a podcast to talk about <laughs> 1992's Tom and Jerry. Yes. It's a 92 movie, but it didn't come out till 93. Yeah. That's what it came out in Germany in 92. And yeah. they're like, okay, we got the festival buzz going. Now it's releasing a summer <laughs> later. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, oh, all right. Miramax too. It's a Miramax release, which really threw me off. <laughs> like, okay. 
Who was abused in the making of Tom and Jerry? Who? Wait, what? Uh, oh, oh right, right, right. Um, <laughs> I thought you were pulling an incredible <laughs> journey type situation. Who plays the captain that comes in midway through? What's his face? Um, incredible journey. That's the one where they kill all the cats and dogs, right? Yeah, I'm talking Is that about Milo Notice. That's my own notice. Yeah. Okay, right, right, right. My mistake. I'm not talking about like animal abuse. I'm talking about human abuse behind the scenes. I am. This Miramax. Um, anyway, let's let's get the fuck off Tom and Rip Jerry. Taylor. That's what I'm trying to Rip, do. Yeah, Rip okay. <laughs> so yeah, Tom and Jerry. No, it's um, mediocre. That's kind. Um, Richard kind. All right, exactly. So. And Tony J. I'll, I'll listen to him read the phone book. Gotcha. All right, well, let's move on to the TV ratings for this week. Who on earth Can I just shot my kids? There's could aim a gun. I need your help with the puzzle. And shoot three small children. I don't want you to be a daddy. I just want you to love me. Farrah Fawcett in her most challenging role. Deviant sociopath. You be your mom. A chilling true story of passion. I just could not get away from Diane. And murder. I can't! Small Sacrifices, a special two-part series, November 12th and 14th. Coming in at number one, according to Nielsen Ratings this week, Small Sacrifices Part 2 is a miniseries from 1989 uh, about, it stars Farrah Fawcett, Ryan O'Neill, John Shea, Emily Perkins, and it is about... A peculiar and disturbing case catches the attention of the police when a young mother and her children, all severely injured, show up in a hospital's emergency room. So, uh, yeah, that's a what a mysterious case. Did they show part one last week, or is that coming up on the thing? <laughs> uh, they must. I it must have, and then it picked up in the ratings or something. But uh, looks like uh. This is a uh, Susan Smith before Susan Smith situation. Mm. Yeah, this is (laughs) spoilers. She tried to kill her own children in disguise as a carjacking. Oh, Um, which I guess is slightly better than Susan Smith, who drowned her children and disguised tried to disguise as a carjacking. Yeah, that okay. Yeah, that brings the fun. Jeez. So number two, hilarity. We have a we have a tie number two with sixty minutes on CBS and. An airing of the Deadpool on ABC. Woohoo! Dirty Harry film. Uh, number four. Starring James Carey. Yes. James Carey, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson that's the fifth, fifth one. one. That's the fifth one. Is that the last and, one? Uh, Patricia, yeah. Patricia Carr. Because it got its ass kicked yeah. by Die Hard, which yep. opened around the same time in July it's of 19. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. Oh, no. I, I like it's my second one. favorite in the series. Yeah. I have, um, I, I have not. I have a giant blind spot with these. I've only seen Dirty Harry. I've never oh. seen an Enforce or Sudden Impact or that other one that I can't think of the title. They are the Enforcer. The Enforcer. Yeah. Um, Enforcer sucks. They are interesting in that I think the first three sequels basically serve as quasi apologies for criticisms that were logged against the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the second um, one definitely. Yeah. But even, you know, the third and fourth. And then by fifth, the Deadpool, they're basically out of things to apologize for. So it's just a fun romp. Yeah, Which it, one has the remote car bomb? Five. That's the Deadpool. That's five. Yeah, I mean, the Deadpool is probably the only Dirty Harry movie I would qualify as being fun. Yeah. What that's worth. It's a mystery movie. Like, it's yeah. like a, a kill. Yeah, it kind of borrows from like the killer doing hits around town from the first one, uh-huh. um, but in a more fun fashion. Yeah, the first. Yeah, the first cars, yeah. So, yeah. 
first Dirty Harry is good. I like, you know, Magnum Force is is an apology for the first one, but I I think it's so damn good movie. Um, the third one is just really boring, and then the the fourth one is kind of like the Rocky Four of the Dirty Harry series. Almost. It really is. I mean, slight spoiler. That's where the line "Make my day" comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing much to it. It's it's that's, it's that's like the one thing I know that the fourth one has yeah. that the line that's associated with the character. It's a by default you think is that in the first one. It's not until the fourth one he actually says that. Yeah, um, it's one of the higher pro, it's one of the high profile. Um, oh, what was her name? Uh, Eastwood Sandra one. Locke. It's Locke. one of those. It's one of those ones where he directs her and she gets raped in a movie and he has to like revenge. So which happens more than once. It happens in plenty of his movies. <laughs> like it's, it's still weird. together. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, number four is turning point on ABC. Number five, 2020 ABC. Number six, home improvement on ABC. Uh, number seven, a tie between Roseanne and Seinfeld. Uh, number nine, unsolved mysteries on NBC and number 10 coach on ABC. You know, with the Farrah Fawcett movie up there, somebody had married a murderer of a children attempted. This time, someone's going to marry an axe murderer. So that was a heartfelt segue. I married an axe murderer. Kiss the beautiful bride this summer. Let's get friends! Mike Myers takes a whack at marriage. With Nancy Travis, Anthony LaPaglia, Amanda Plummer, Michael Richards, Stephen Wright. What are you doing? Wake up! And Mike Myers. <laughs> so I married an axe murderer. She's quite a filly. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Directed by Thomas, is it Schlamm? Shlami, Shlami, Uh He's a career TV director and comedy specials is what he's done. Written by uh, Robbie Fox, who'd go on to write In the Army Now and more recently, Granddaddy Daycare. But this had extensive rewrites by Mike Myers and Neil Malarkey to the part Not where great. they were taking it to like court and stuff to try to get credit. Um, starring... Mike Myers, Nancy Travis, Nancy Travis, Anthony LaPaglia, um, Amanda Plummer, Matt Doherty, Charles Grodin, Phil Hartman, Debbie Mazar, Stephen Wright, Brenda Fricker, Michael Richards, Greg German, Kathy Griffin, and Alan Arkin. And Phil Hartman. And Phil. Which now always makes me sad. (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I did say Phil Hartman. Uh, Sorry. Apologies. God, Jesus. Jeez, thanks for the repeat. Uh, a San Francisco poet who fears commitment suspects his girlfriend may have a knack for killing off her significant others. I have always been a pretty solid fan of this movie, but uh, Scott, how do you feel about it? Uh, I was, I, I never liked it. Then again, I'm not going to you know fire and brimstone here, but for one thing, I find the whole beat poetry thing incredibly annoying. And I think, I don't know if we're supposed to find that endearing or not. I find, I find it funny. It, <laughs> like it's well, a it's a knock on the beat poetry. It's not um heartfelt. But other than that, I mean it's 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 fine. It I did I never found the film particularly funny. And the resolution is seems to raise more questions than it answers, frankly. Um but it is interesting watching Mike Myers do what in many ways feels like a dry run or a dress rehearsal or a workshop for some of the stuff he would do, I would argue to much greater effect than Austin Powers a couple years later, a few years later. 
Um, this is obviously his one for me picture after Wayne's World, and that's fine. It's obviously very personal to him. Um, and it just, it's a comedy that doesn't make me laugh very much. So, and I don't find the story all that engrossing. So, because of that, it doesn't do much for me. All right. There Scott goes. There Scott goes again. Aaron. Podcast. 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 <laughs> we are recording and it's never boring, even when Scott's mic screws up. Thank you. Um, <laughs> You're not welcome. <laughs> this, this movie making me laugh. What do you want me to say? Like, I'm not going to say it's a classic comedy. I'm not going to say it's one of Meyer, Myers' top com. Actually, I mean, by default, it might be one of his top comedies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like what I'm what I am saying is it's not. Yeah, it's not Austin Powers, uh, but it's still it's genuinely very funny. And a lot of that's because of the stacked cast of comedic players in there. I mean, if you don't laugh, you don't laugh. I mean, it's subjective. It's comedy. Like it's you know, <laughs> if you're not on the wavelength like the humor going on here, then there's nothing to really do about it. Um, it's just, you know, it's not base emotions. It's just like jokes. Like the the plotting itself is silly, much like most Myers comedies. So it's hard to get like wrapped up in how much sense this makes by the time it wants to, you know, have some kind of story resolution. But I'm not concerned at that point. Could I say that the first two thirds are better than the last third? Sure, but regardless, I'm laughing consistently in this movie. I've always laughed watching this movie. I was happy to revisit it again and just realized how there how many bits that I like in this. So many things that pop up that I know are coming, but still make me laugh. Small things like the whole stuff with Michael Richards in the one office. And <laughs> yeah. It builds to a point where he just like just yelling at everybody. He's like, look at the insensitive man. And it's just really funny. The... Um, the thing that always gets me is the Phil Hartman scene because Phil Hartman's a, a, just a comedic genius. And this is another big Philly weekend um, after Coneheads last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but two Philly weekends in a row. I like that I've seen the TV version so much where the story he gives about um, the thing on Alcatraz, it's like heavily edited. So like watching this version, like, oh yeah, that's right. It's more explicit as <laughs> what he's saying. It's like some really hard edits. That movie. Uh, Myers, I think, is generally very fun here. You don't see him ever doing this after this movie. Like, even Wayne's World 2, it's still like, you know, it's satirical or whatever. He's just playing basically a version of himself to some degree, where everything else, it's costumes or what have you. So, like, seeing him, unless I'm missing something dramatically, like, I guess Pete's Meteor, but no one knows that movie. No one knows that movie at all. Um, So, like, seeing him do this in this mode, it's, like, fun. Obviously, though, he gets to also play his own father, which is, again, hilarious. I mean, there's just like Mm -hmm. between him and Eddie Murphy, which is funny that they both would go on to team up together like they but like this whole like, let's play multiple roles in a movie thing. It works. I mean, there's a reason why it worked, because it's funny. Like, it generally amuses me to see that happen. But like, again, all the side care, like Alan Arkin stuff kills me. Mm Anthony LaPaglia, I think what there's something I noticed this time around. There's so many scenes of him, of LaPaglia and Myers, like just especially as the father, where they're just together. And you can see the genuine joy he's getting of just being next to Myers, like watching him as the father. Because it's like naturally, this a human being would laugh at this ridiculous father character. And so they're not like cutting out away from him laughing. Because it's like, of course he'd be laughing. It shouldn't not be that. It's just, it's stuff like that. It just puts me in a good mood watching this movie as a, a rom com that like has this weird, like, tries to be Hitchcocky and Edge thing going on, but it's like, it's not there, but it doesn't require it because it's a comedy. And it's, you mentioned Tommy Schlavi. 
he is a legendary TV director. Like the walk and talk in West Wing is very much like his thing. Like that's mm-hmm. his that's one of his big claims to fame. He's directed so much TV. There's some I'm not gonna argue that this is an amazingly directed movie, but there's some cleverness. It doesn't feel like it's from a TV director. Like there's yeah, a lot of times yeah. where you're like, did he do t-? yeah, he did TV. This like, one now, like, yeah. yeah, nowadays you can see like the sitcom lighting going on or what have you. This movie has some like even the opening shot, it's a big you know, tracking shot in the city of San Francisco that goes to like a small coffee shop and it's on the giant cappuccino mug and it's like we don't need this shot but here it is it's like so there's like stuff going on that i appreciate it and just that it's in san francisco it's like which just feels different for a mm-hmm. movie like it just you know you don't it's not the la or new york so and it's you know film there so yeah no, I, I enjoy this this is constantly enjoyable to me yeah, and it's a unique san francisco it's not like a showboaty san francisco like all the other yeah. ones it feels like uh like a lived-in san francisco um that i like yeah i i've always liked this i i, I don't feel like this is like some I like it more than most, I would say. And I recognize that it's kind of like a medium tier, like in the terms of like comedies or greatness with it. Um, I think Mike Myers, like in the 90s, he's, well, he's one of my all time favorite SNL cast members. And he was just like a genius comedically with like, you know, his his joke setups, his characters, like things like that. Like I loved, love that. I'm surprised we didn't get more exposed or more movies based off stuff he did. Uh, back then, it was very selective. Um, and this, like you said, Aaron, this is a unique situation where he's like the straight guy doing his stuff. He's not a super character doing everything, unless you're talking about the father, which is a hilarious, like odd, just like an odd, like because he doesn't play anybody else in it. He's just like the father, and it's just it's pretty funny. Um, which would go which on is, to like because the father mentions the Pentaveret, which mm-hmm. just became a series on Netflix. By all accounts, yeah. a terrible series on Netflix, but it actually became a series on Netflix. Right, and then I mean he used that shtick to, you know, be fat bastard later on. Um, and gold member and Don't gold, gold member. Gold member, but I think you know Mike Myers from like you know SNL, Wade's World to like Shrek is just awesome stuff coming, like hilarious stuff coming out of him. Uh, if you're a fan of Mike Myers, you certainly get a lot of good mm-hmm. Mike Myers stuff and the yeah. fact that he's selective I think makes it more I don't know unique because of yeah. it like you get Jim Carrey movies every year for like 10 right. years where Mike Myers like pops up he's like hey it's Mike Myers that's fun. well and this one sticks out big time uh when you're looking at it it's almost like it could almost be forgotten because like oh yeah SNL Austin Powers Wayne's World Shrek like well there's this little axe murderer comedy and then uh the Studio 54 <laughs> that movie uh that came out um but I, I love I'm little... surprised this one isn't produced by J- Lauren Michaels, by the way. I was like, no, hey, this feels like it would have been produced by Lauren Michaels, but it's not. Which right. Is impressive. And I love the little bits like when he like the next morning after he stays the night with Nancy Travis, and he wakes up with Amanda Plummer there. I love him and Amanda Plummer together. Like when he's walking around his underwear, embarrassed and um they're sitting eating breakfast together like some funny stuff like his that, that cutaway joke when she says all the things about breakfast that it just cuts to him poor poor, poor right <laughs> i didn't have any of those other things yeah was, i didn't have any and the thing i think one of mike meyer's strengths is reacting to outrageous people in a way that's not like like just his like understated reactions to like crazy people and things and that's all like all over the place here uh this is a, a favorite cameo of mine charles Groden is big chuck summer yeah big chuck summer uh here like that he's like the tapping oh no it's my favorite sound <laughs> like i i like that um nancy travis is she like blonde andy mcdowell is that what she basically is 
Yes. Like, I feel like they give off like the same kind of thing. Um, the, uh, the So the Poets Corner Hotel in this is uh, Scott. I'm surprised you didn't have a fondness for this movie. It's the where Stacy Sutton lives in a view to a kill. So didn't know it's a family classic over there. And it's the how it's from Phantasm <laughs> as well. So. Uh, but Scott, you I just watched Phantasm for the first time recently. That's yeah, good what stuff. Is, it's interesting. Um, so Scott, you said this is a passion. Pro- I don't know if this is a passion project because this was floating around well before Myers got to it because it was. Well, I don't know. It's, it, it feels written. like a very personal, one for me kind of picture. He took to it, but this was written for Chevy Chase. Um, the I like this version better. Um, and then it went through like Woody Allen touched it, Albert Brooks, and Martin Short before it got to Mike Myers. His voice oh. is obviously all over it, but like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's no, what I mean. He, I mean, it's he scrawled all over. Yeah, he's like, all right, if I'm going to be in this, I'm going to change it. We know historically now that Mike Myers is very hands on uh, with the things he works on, uh, but like, yeah, like there's a lot of people that go through. Like Sharon Stone was going to be in this, uh, but she wanted to play a dual role, and then which I think is a clever idea. It and is I, a clever I, idea. That's a, that's a fun idea. I, <laughs> How do you think she feels when she gets like she quits because she won't get? She's not allowed to play a dual role, and then goes to see it, and Mike Myers is playing a dual playing role. Playing a dual role. Like, <laughs> that's it. Uh, but like and she's in Sliver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brooke Shields, Kim Basinger, Emma Thompson, Nicole Kidman all passed on this movie. Kim Basinger um, was like, I'll wait for Dana Carvey, please. And then he was in one World War II. Yeah. The, four uh, months later. <laughs> the funny thing is, LaPaglia, he was, they wanted, Mike Myers wanted Dan Aykroyd for it. Uh, and then David, then David Spade was offered it and he chose Coneheads. Uh, and Lauren Michaels suggested he do this and not Coneheads, apparently. Huh. I think it worked out because I really like Lapagli in this movie. Yeah, I do. And, and it's like, not well, an actor who appears in a bunch of stuff where no, Lapagli's here, but in this movie, I really like him. Yeah, and then I guess Steve Gutenberg was offered this. Uh, the, the Goot? Too. Yeah, the Goot. Um, but yeah, no, so it went around. It changed a lot of hands. But yeah, this is, I think it, it's a fun movie. Like, does it make a, whole, like, a lot of sense? Yeah, I don't need it to. I just kind of need it to wrap up. And there's funny stuff with her chasing him on, like, on the roof and stuff. And we're made a plumber. Like she was like go-to female psychopath back in the day. Wasn't she like, there's not a lot of like, right. Even like her normal role, like Fisher King, she's still weird. She like, has a, she has, yeah, she has like a vibe that's kind of out there, mm-hmm. which kind of morphs into uh, Julia Lewis after Cape fear. Yeah. <laughs> true. True. But you no, know, th- this movie's I I'm surprised Scott was down on it, but, I don't hate it. It just has never done much for me. It's the, it's the start of Big Plumber Summer, by the way. Big yeah. Plumber Summer, yes. <laughs> summer of Plumber. Hooked on uh, the brothers. We already had Mario, so it is the Summer of Plumbers. The Summer of Plumbers, yeah. <laughs> Mario, a movie we were more positive on when we initially recorded some of these episodes. <laughs> and since then, we've seen Mario. <laughs> true, true. True, yeah, we have seen Mario now. Um, might go back and re-record that one. We I have um, <laughs> I have I have one more poem. Um, as we wrap this. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, where is it? There we go. Um, things are stupid. Um, <laughs> movies, movies podcast. We sit here and talk, and we think it rocks. Yes, we are bragging. We are not dragging. For movies, we're nerd E. Thank you.
All right. <laughs> well, that leads us perfectly into the Casey Kasem top 10. Casey's biggest hits. The top 40 from the top 40 songs of the week. Uh, number one this week, stay in there, is Can't Help Falling in Love from UB40. Uh, number two is Whoop, There It Is from it Tag is. Team. Number three, Week by SWV. Number four, jumping up five spots, is I'm going to be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. Hey. Number five, Slam, da-da-da, da-da-da, <laughs> from Onyx. Number six, That's the Way Love Goes by Jen Jackson. Number seven, jumping into the top ten, is Lately by Jodeci. Number eight, Show Me Love by Robin S. Number nine, Knockin' to Boots by H-Town. And number ten, I'll Never Get Over You, Getting Over Me by Expose. There is a funny thing. A song peaks here at number 14 this week. Woot! There it is by 95 <laughs> South. You mentioned that last week that it was coming in. Yeah. Woot! There it is. And woot! There is Robin Hood, Men in Tights. 20th Century Fox presents Ow! I challenge you to a duel. The first action hero. I accept. And the last word in comedy. White men can't jump. Robin Hood. Men in tights. And why should the people listen to you? Unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. A Mel Brooks film. The legend had its come. Rated PG-13. Starts Wednesday, July 28th at theaters everywhere. Directed by Mel Brooks. Written by Mel Brooks. J.D. Shapiro. Evan Chandler. Uh, starring Carrie Elways, Richard Lewis, Roger Reese, Amy Yasbeck, Mark Blankfield, Dave Chappelle, Isaac Hayes, Megan Cavaugh, Eric Allen Kramer, Tracy Ullman, Patrick Stewart, Dom DeLuise, Dick Van Patten, Chase Masterson, Mel Brooks, and apparently Danny McBride was in this movie. Let me read that. Read somewhere that he mentioned that he was... Round on the set of this movie. So this is a spoof of Robin Hood in general and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves from 1991 in particular. So when this came out, I really liked this movie. Friends liked this movie. Talked about this movie. But uh, we'll see how we feel now. So Scott, um, did you laugh at this one? (laughs) I'll be honest. I saw this on opening weekend when I was 13. Um, actually, no, not opening weekend. I had my tonsils taken out that weekend, but I saw it after. I, you know, I grew up loving Spaceballs. I grew up loving Blazing Saddles and the producers. And, but this one feels to me like a hybrid of distinctly Mel Brooks humor and the kind of generic non Zuckerish parodies that would be sort of come into play very soon after. I think the stuff that deals with, you know, sexual repression and what have you is still funny because it's clear that Mel Brooks, you know, still cares about that stuff. I think the actual Robin Hood specific jokes are very hit and miss. There's a lot of you recognize this thing from this other thing. And even when I was a kid, I never particularly liked that those kind of callbacks. Um I think everybody in the cast is, you know, Carrie Elwes is having a black, very good. Uh, Roger Rees is obviously having a grand old time. Uh, Richard Lewis is basically playing himself, but it's funny. It's, you know, it was a big man when I was 13 and it still is. Um, it did lead me to watching for the first time just because 
whatever uh dracula dead and loving it which i had never seen and same thing it's it's funny when it's dealing with specific you know issues with you know british repression and what have you and hypocrisy but the dracula a lot of the dracula specific humor is member berries for lack of a better better word so you know in retrospect i mean for me i i still love producers young frankenstein blazing saddles Spaceballs goes in and out for me. I love it. was one of my favorite movies as a little kid. When I watched it in college, I felt it had been very dated. Now that I'm an adult, I kind of appreciate the very specific Jewishness of it that I enjoy. This one is just sort of one of the ones that just sort of sits there. Um, I don't think it's as bad as, say, uh, what's the Hitchcock one that he did? High, uh, High anxiety. High anxiety. Yeah, which I never particularly liked either. Fighting words over here. But. Yeah, it's certainly nowhere near as accomplished as his 60s and 70s pictures. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, did you, So we have this in Hot Shots Part 2. Which did you enjoy more this, for this? Oh, I think by default, Hot Shots Part 2, but I think they had a lot, of, both, a lot of the same problems. And they pointed toward a lot of the same issues with the, I guess you could call it the 90s generation of spoofs, where they were just more about referencing recent popular culture as opposed to actually making a joke. Yeah. Um, and you, you get a lot of that in, you know, uh, a lot of the non Zucker Leslie Nielsen pictures, which didn't even occur to me until I watched, but it's like Dracula was the first of those. Cause that's before spy hard. That's before wrong for you. And what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think Nielsen is horribly miscast in Dracula, but you yeah, know, that's, that's the biggest problem with that movie. Mm. The yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. It just, I, I yeah, but Gary Owens is not miscast at all in Robin Hood. He's actually terrific. Um, I, I do think it is is too beholden to specifically Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And obviously, there's a lot of the adventures of Robin Hood there. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because those are the two most popular versions of Robin Hood. And they have um, the money for that one for to pair yes. more so than Prince of Thieves. <laughs> Um, and you know, whatever, maybe they didn't want to get sued by Disney, but I was kind of open for in retrospect, you know, some shots of the cartoon would have been nice. That's the other one that a lot of people have seen when you think of Robin Hood as a pop culture thing. Um, John run through the forest. (laughs) Um, but it's harmless. It's, it's well-staged. It looks nice. Everyone's having fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Is it yours, Aaron? No, it never has (laughs) been. Um, I'm a huge Mel Brooks fan, um, you know, going to Hebrew school and watching Spaceballs many times by default, that makes you a Mel Brooks fan. You're required to be, if anything, that's part of the bar mitzvah that we had. Um, but no, I, you know, Mel Brooks does it for me. Like I, I, I was very happy that history of the world part two worked out for me quite well as well. Uh, but I just realized I own every Mel Brooks movie between this and these, these damn things. So it's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> um, I, you know, getting Mel Brooks in my life is like, that's great. I wish this movie was better. It's not. It. I didn't like it when I was younger. I don't like it now. I don't think it's terrible by any means. It's much better than Dracula Dead and Loving It. Um, it's probably better than Life Stinks. Um, but, which I, I guess that's the one I don't own. But honestly, I haven't seen that in forever. But I remember a lot of it quite well. It's like, eh. That's the one that works better as a drama than a comedy weirdly yeah enough. and if it was more successful we might have seen a different side of things mm-hmm. um but the, yeah men in tights 
I saw it. I did see it in theaters. It's the one movie I saw originally when it was released in theaters for Mel Brooks, because uh, I, I didn't see Dracula in theaters. Um, or the other ones, because just too young at that point. But I remember I had seen Prince of Peas, which I also am still not a fan of. Uh, so seeing like a spoof movie of that was like, okay. Um, and this is, you know, granted, seven-year-old me, but even then it's like, I'm not laughing, I'm not laughing. But it's like, it doesn't jive in the way that like I had, you know, I had known from like Spaceballs to work on multiple levels as far as being a kid at that time versus now where, yes, I could see why it's not as good as Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein, but at least I could still like tolerate it as far as it has a lot of gags, like So I Married an Axe. It's like in that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie just, it's exactly what Scott said as far as it has a lot of like, recognize this, well, here it is in this setting. And it's like, that's not very especially clever. I will say, I believe this is the movie that, this and Dracula are the movies that ruined me on Richard Lewis and Stephen Weber and why I always confuse the two. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's because I saw both of these movies and I just think they, they, they have a similar look to them. Despite You know what? And their mannerisms and stuff. That's they're crazy. Very, yeah, I never thought about it until this man- second. And you said yeah. that and I clicked. Their Here's how you tell them apart. Weber was on the TV show Wings. While Stephen was not. Or Wright was not. And that's all I got. Nailed that one. Um, <laughs> Dr. landing, but I, 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 they are they are they, like despite Lewis being older, they are they have a similar look to them. But I will say they are both, I think, the best some of the best parts of these movies. I, I think Richard Lewis is very funny in this movie. There's a lot of people that are like humorous in this movie. Um, I forgot Isaac Hayes was a choose father <laughs> completely until I watched mm-hmm. it again. Um, I do think Harry Elwes is well cast here. I like that he knows how to lean in the right kind of way. Where it's he's playing, not playing it necessarily straight, but he's playing it in a manner that like this fits compared to like you said, Leslie Nielsen doesn't fit for Dracula. He fits for Robin Hood because it's like, well, he's played Wesley, obviously, and and we're kind of spoofing off of Errol Flynn. And Carrie always has a very Errol Flynn look to him, so and he doesn't like, buy into the craziness going around him. He's able to keep with not to like occasionally, yeah. and and the occasionally is where the movie's like goes really wrong as mm-hmm. far as. I find it interesting that this movie is held up by people of my generation as far as like, yeah, that's just as good as the other ones or whatever in that same kind of like hook is great realm that I don't Mm. buy into at all because there's a lot of stuff that I think those same people, if they actually sat down and watched this movie again, would be very offended by these days, given how offended everybody is by things like watching like Robin Hood and Achu do like karate moves all of a sudden and making Bruce Lee noises. Like what movie am I watching? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, the men in tights stuff, there's no real layer to that as far as like, isn't it funny that we're wearing tights, but we're men gentle gay panic humor. Even when I was a kid, it was like, which is very much of the nineties. And certainly not like, it's not like, Oh my God, this is terrible. I can't believe they got away with them. I'm not saying that, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know where I don't know what the nostalgia is for this movie beyond like well Carrie Elwes is a handsome man like I don't know what else is there so it's it doesn't like have that grip like watching Sawyer married an act, married an axe murderer like I get where the flaws are but that movie's funny like it like it it works it hits the hits what it's going for it has people that are doing bits that work for me this movie has a lot of like gags that I mean that this movie wasn't a giant hit then and I don't know why it would stand up now it's not a cool well, and, like, and it's Robin Hood too, so it's like, and it is a specific Robin Hood that's not one that like we sit and go to, like Spaceballs. It's, it's Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Young Frankenstein is, you know, 
Frankenstein. And then Blaze House works as a just a solid western. It doesn't feel like super specific. Like this one, yeah, this, there's this kind is. of like it hit in a this is of the Brooks ones, this is one that like hits in this moment and is like good for like a year or two. Yeah, and I think it really wears out. I think Brooks himself has worn out the let me take a specific thing and spoof that and then add stuff onto it after, with this between this movie and Dracula, mm-hmm. where I think the other ones <laughs> all generally click for me. I like, I mean, I you know whatever. I like Spaceballs a lot; still makes me laugh. I like High Anxiety quite a bit. I get the irony of having a comedy Hitchcock movie for Hitchcock, who already makes kind of dark comedies already, but at the same time. You got some great gags. There's some great gags in High Anxiety. Like I really, it's not for me. Generally speaking, for spoofs, the less there is a specific story structure that's riffing on a known film, the better. The more I intend to enjoy them. I'd agree. So it's why I like, among other reasons, I love the Naked Gun movies because they are original screenplays. Yeah. Um, and it's I think just, it's, it's not the, like I like. I mean, I get you prefer Top Secret to Airplane, but Airplane is like direct dead on to what's. Oh, I, Airplane is my yeah. favorite comedy. I was yeah, just lucky right. that I never knew it was based on anything until much later in life. Like I'd argue most people probably don't. Yeah. This, right. Yeah. I remember <laughs> I was in school looking at my English textbook that for some reason there would be a play to say this is you know what a play looks like or a script looks like, and I'm reading this like the zero hour. I was like, what the. F- this is airplane this is identical to airplane what the hell am i reading i feel like the most successful version of that is dr strange love and failsafe because i think both movies are fucking great but they're yeah but they're only they're dialed like minor degrees differently and it works yeah anyway brandon why do you think this is better than brazen's house oh it's (laughs) uh no this like i don't know there's uh there's stuff in here that I still think is kind of funny, like when Blinken is fighting with the sword against the post. I do. I, I like that a bit. But like most of the time I was watching it, I haven't watched this in probably since the 90s. And I was just kind of like, huh. And also, uh, speaking of Wings, Amy Yasbeck in this movie, she was in Wings. Um Yes. Years, um, which <laughs> I, I like Amy Yasbeck, but what like. And she's like, a Dracula too, so she'll date yeah, yeah, like so she worked with Brooke. Like I, I don't know what we go back to her. Uh, like she was in like Problem Child. Um, the Mask is next year. The Mask, like yeah. she's the second lead, lady lead in that movie, not the first. Yeah, but um, yeah, it, it's just kind of, uh, and then like, oh, Chappelle's here, and it's like, oh, he's not used quite right. No, <laughs> uh, it's, it's like it's his first movie role in a show. Right. Like, um, and he, he's never like. Now he's more harnessed acting, but he's never been like those night like people like half baked, but he's not like a good actor in those right. movies. He's just kind of there. And there's the part with Dom DeLuise, and I'm like, we're still making Godfather jokes here. Like Yep. It's I, I mean <laughs> that's, that's what crazy. it gets desperate. I watched that scene of like I I'm not averse to I just remembered the joke I really like, but I'm not averse to seeing Dom DeLuise in a movie, but it's also like really really straining really reaching for stuff here the one real before i forget the one joke i really like is when dick van dick dick um what's it dick van Patten is the the abbot and he's walking mm-hmm. up the aisle and they're all saying hi right. and the one guy yells hey abbot that kills me that, that makes me genuinely laugh very much. which i i guess somebody sees the dom deloise scene is like hey like five years later let's make a full mel brooks mafia type movie with mafia Jane Austen's Mafia. Jane Austen's Mafia. Exclamation point. 
Excellent. Say the title writer, don't say it at all. So, <laughs> that's an easy choice. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of yeah, Elways is good here, but just watch Princess Bride if you want this kind of good performance out of him. Um is this the last time he's like a good guy in a movie? Might be, other than that right? that Operation Fortune. If I recall, yeah, but even then he's like a side guy. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like a lead good person. <laughs> no, you might be right. Yeah, after like, this, kiss the girls, he, liar, liar. He's either yeah. a villain or a Baxter or like a cad in any other movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's the villain in uh, Ella Enchanted. Sure. He's kind of a hero, anti-hero in Saw. He's he even Saw. He's just like that whiny. Like you don't care. Yeah, yeah. He's not. A <laughs> like, um, you know, he's he's. More susceptible to under, susceptible susceptible to influence in the crush. Yeah, um. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like this is the last yeah. time he's like. It's it's the same thought I have with like Matthew Broderick. Like Ferris Bueller is the last time he's cool in a movie. Yeah, yeah. Like he's never cool again after Ferris Bueller. And I, right. I think it's a case of where you know this this he's so defined by the Princess Bride when you think of Gary Ellis, but that's one of the only times he did that. Which is yeah. wild to me that he yeah. wouldn't like, consistently play like dashing hero characters. Yeah. And by all accounts, he's like the nicest guy in real life. So it's like this guy should like. I'm glad he's had a great career. And he like he has a family, whatever. But it's like, man, he really just didn't become the hero after that movie. All right, wanted to challenge himself. Um, also, um, I do like. I one of the brilliant moves here is I like how they replaced Sean Connery from Robin Hood <laughs> with Patrick Stewart. That's. <laughs> I don't know. There's some kind of genius move there that well, uh, I does a was... Scottish accent when he comes on. That's the that's what yes. made me this time because I never <laughs> noticed that before. He's being specifically Scottish when he first gets to screen. That's that's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like when he was cast as the poop emoji in the uh, the emoji movie, whatever the hell it's called. It was, everyone was like shocked and oh my god! It's like, have you paid attention to anything that Patrick Stewart off time? Mm-hmm. I mean, he fucking, you know, he's an American dad. He narrated Ted. He was in a Mel Brooks movie in the 1990s. He yep. clearly yeah, likes he, this. He stuff. like he like a make a funny. Yeah, make a make a funny. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I, I did. I think I thought it was funny too that uh, this summer we have. You know, I mentioned Hot Shots Part Two, but both of them, the promotional poster image is the lead with a bow yeah, and arrow. Bow and arrow. <laughs> the summer of arrows. Yeah. And like the one that was Hot Shots is like the chicken or whatever, and then this one's like, oh yeah, one arrow. We got like six. Yeah, I go. like that that's both one scene in the movie, but it's like, this is the iconic shot right here. <laughs> this is what we got. Right. Which I get. And I do think the gag is funny. The execution's whatever, because Mel Brooks doesn't try very hard with these kind of things. But like, it, it's there. Like, I, okay, I get it. Yeah. I will. I do like Hot Shots Part 2 a lot more than this movie. I like, right. I think I like No, I, I did. I liked it quite a bit better. And because th- this one, like, Hot Shots Part 2, like, it's narrative and adventure kind of plays nicely like a movie and this one's just kind of like i guess we're doing things from robin hood stuff here we go yeah, it's very slapdazical here's the, know, this and, scene and here's that scene yeah um so i feel the like roger the roger ruse bit of share as a sheriff of rottingham where he says words backwards that never works for me like it's no. just no. especially because like the first time it's okay because it's like just two words but then it becomes like full sentences and it's like this is, we're laboring this joke a lot. This is not working. Yeah, and I feel Tracy like Tracy Ullman, though, innocent. Tracy Ullman, yeah. do whatever you want to do. That works. I, I feel like like Richard Lewis is here. It's great, but like I feel like he's on a leash too. Like he could have been oh, a, a bit, lot, yeah. m- lot yeah. better. Um, 
than he was, which I only knew him like I mean mostly know him now from Curb Your Enthusiasm, but like yeah. he he had a sitcom with Jamie Lee Curtis in the eighties. That's what like he all did? I would like remembered him from. Um, yeah, yeah. that's you know decades long stand up comedian. Yeah, he has a very right, specific right. persona, right? Which is this is this to a T. I mean, he's basically playing himself. Yeah. Um, you don't hire Richard Lewis to play a you know deep dramatic yeah. character. You hire no. Stephen Weber to play Jack Torrance on The Shining. Right. Although if you want to see him unusually good in a comparative role in a film that's still a comedy, you ever see Amy Heckerling's Vamps? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like really good. At, I mean, it's weirdly sweet and sincere in a way that he usually doesn't get to play all that much. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so, digression. The Michael Lerner role for or is it Dan? Which one's in Clueless? And which one's in the Clueless TV show? Is it Dan Hedaya in the in the movie? movie. Dan Hedaya's yeah, in the movie, yes. And then Michael Lerner's in the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> I always <laughs> Donald Faison says the same. Dan Hedaya changes. Got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like yeah, this movie is just kind of like it's it's yeah. like when you're going through the Brookses, you might stop here. It's or, also long. Yeah. Like it's not it's not paced well. That's what kept getting Yeah, good. yeah, yeah, it's like, true. It's not zippy. Like yeah, it's 110 minutes. Once they get it moved, but there's a because it's so devoted to Prince of Thieves, which is a boring as hell movie, it sucks. Yes. <laughs> like, it, 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 because it's two and a half hours, it takes for fucking ever to do anything, much like Hook. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that one I'll give wow, you. Oh, all right. Five so th- and this movie very much follows that plot. So it's like yeah. I don't need oh, yes, absolutely. It to be an hour and 45 minutes. Make this 80 minutes tops. Like, this right? Is yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prince yep. of Thieves rocks. Yeah, I'm, as angry. I'm, as, I'm as angry again as I was with Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Speak- <laughs> Speaking of angry, uh, let's check in with Yancey for <laughs> Yancey's Tales from the Video Store. Nomine Patris. Quebec, 1634. What happens when the ambitions of the old world come face to face with the mysticism and savagery of the new? From Bruce Beresford, director of Driving Miss Daisy and Tender Mercies, Black Road, rated R. Now at Select Theater, starts Friday at a theater near you. One night at archive, when I was working at archives with Robert and Steve, there's a lot of characters here. We were working one night, and a, a sort of attractive young uh, graduate student came in and told us she was writing a something about Native Americans, or she needed to see a movie that was about Native Americans and the Native American experience. Uh, Steve and Robert were both very eager to serve her, and 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 Steve went running over to the B section uh, of the dramas, and Robert yelled out, "No, Steve, do not get her Billy Jack." And in fact, Steve. In fact, Steve had gone for Black Robe, the Bruce Beresford, uh, very sober Indian or Native American movie. Indian, it was, you know, it was like this Oscar Oscar wannabe movie that had come and gone in the early nineties. Black Robe, I never saw it, but it's sort of it's a highbrow sort of movie about Native Americans. And she and he he was going to give that to her. Um, Billy Jack, who for those who haven't seen it, is in Steve's words a movie about a kick-ass biker Indian. Played by a guy who I don't think is Native American. No, it's like an Australian guy. Or no, is he? No. He kind of like, he did his own stuff, though. He like produced all those Billy Jack movies, right? Tom Laughlin, yeah. Yeah. I I like those movies. And they're like, they're funny because it's only in America when you have a character in a movie who kicks guys to death because they're intolerant. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, funny enough, like, I'm, I'm actually 
going back to Tar- I'm reading Tar- in the middle of Tarantino's book, and he in his chapter about Dirty Harry, he's talking about the reception of the time and people being upset about what Dirty Harry was doing. He goes, if Billy Jack was doing the same thing, no one would have cared. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I got to read that. I still haven't read it. I do have a last little addendum to that archive video archive story, which is when I was working there. I remember one night there was, it was, you know, there was nobody there and I was working by myself. I imagine I went and got the little, I found the little log book they used to log mm-hmm. all the um, season passes. And I looked back a couple of years and I found my dad's little name in the season pass. And when he bought me the thing, he'd, he'd been dead a few years by then. And, you know, I was signed in by Chuck, who was a guy that worked there. And I was like, Oh, look at that. It was a cool little asterisk at the end there. <laughs> All right, now our uh, big centerpiece, our main event for this episode. Finally, a comedy that's funny. Right. Rising Sun. The suspense is rising. The excitement is building. Sean Connery. Wesley Snipes. In the most thrilling motion picture of the year. Directed by Philip Kaufman, written by Philip Kaufman, uh, Michael Crichton, and Michael Bax, uh, starring Sean Connery, Wesley Snipes, Harvey Keitel, Kerry Hiroyuki, uh, Tagawa, Mako, Tatiana uh, Patitz, Kevin Anderson, Ray Wise, Tia Carrera, Stan Shaw, and Steve Buscemi. Because we it's comedy, right? It's the first series. film of Buscemi, which is surprising. Yeah. It feels like he would have been in a lot of films this year. And he's in having, one. Having not seen this since theaters, I was I did not I was shocked to see him. Right. I did not know he was in this because back then I did not know who he was. Gotcha. So uh when an escort girl is found dead in the offices of a Japanese company in Los Angeles, detectives Webb Smith and John Connor act as a liaison between the company's executives and the investigating cop Tom Graham. So Philip Kaufman, the director of this, like I feel like he's got a pretty awesome career, but like a lot of people might be like, "Huh?" When his name comes up, like motherfucker wrote Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, did the story for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he writes and directs like Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, the best one, uh, the right the stuff, right a bearable likeness, yeah. <laughs> A bearable lightness of being, uh, Henry and Jude, Quills. Quills, Quills, like, yeah, like, I, I feel like you hear Kaufman and like, who, like, like he's legit. Yeah, he gets the benefit of the doubt for me forever because of the right stuff and body snatchings. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, they made it. In, in, we won't in, talk like, about Twisted. We don't <laughs> need to talk, which is, <laughs> well, yeah, we don't need to talk about Twisted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so this one is like, Check out computer artwork, the movie, uh, for a bit of it. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, revisiting Rising Sun, Aaron, how'd you feel about the Rising Sun? I've never seen this before. Um, I it's nice to catch up with Leslie Snipes, who I haven't seen before because you always sit on black and it works out. Um, this movie is ultimately not very good, but there's a lot of people in it that I'm like, oh, that's fun. It's a lot more of like, I'm looking at this and being like, oh, he's in this too. That's nice. And like, I didn't, for some reason, I just wasn't paying attention to the credits. So I didn't realize Harvey Keitel was like third lead. So by the time he shows up, I'm like, oh, cool. Harvey Keitel's here. That's always fun. Um, the plot of this movie 
is um well they make choices let me tell you <laughs> they, they make choices for this mystery and a lot of them hinge on doctored footage which is interesting um i don't know what I don't know what, like, my takeaway is supposed to be in all this. Like, if they just want to, like, impress me with showing that Sean Connery learned Japanese for a few months so he can be in this movie. <laughs> uh, but, like, there's by default, there's star charisma and energy between Connery and Snipes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, like, in 93, people were like, Connery, Snipes, finally, these two are together, as if we've been waiting for that. Um, but I don't know. Like, it's... It doesn't do much for me beyond like, well, now I know what that looks like, I guess. I mean, this is a big year for Snipes. There's Rising Sun, Boiling Point, and Demolition Man. So this is like, doo-doo-doo-doo. So. Yeah, good, good. I mean, again, good on Snipes. Happy to see Snipes in movies. But like, because he's great. He's a, he's a movie star. He knows how to do it. But mm-hmm. Boiling Point was unusually good for some. I mean, it was basically sold as a bo- ah, boilerplate thriller. But it, Dennis Hopper was giving an interesting performance in that picture. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, this like the mystery involved like again, it's like I don't know what we're ultimately trying to get to here based off like where it goes as far as the why of it all because we we get answers but not but it like it's about corporate espionage to a degree and it's like I don't care about any of this and, like it's dealing with the seedy side of of L.A. which I always screw up because I always think of what's the other one with with Connery and and um the West if uh, just cause. Not just cause that because that's like the Bayou or whatever. Mm. No, the other one, the that's in San Francisco. Um, the Rock? No, <laughs> no, the Presidio. The Presidio. Oh right, Pris <laughs> Pris Presidio. Uh, but no, it's just like it feels like it, like ultimately like just a nothing of a of a story that they're trying to tell here. Where I don't, I there's you could make strong arguments that it's doing worse for the Asian community than better. Uh, despite the fact that it heavily involves like you know Asian actor, you know Japanese and what have you, but it's like what are, what is this amounting to? So I don't know. Like it's you know it's a relic of the '90s that it's like if you didn't see it before, you're not missing much now. No, sure. I wasn't allowed to see this movie uh, because of the like sexual kill violence thing that my parents wouldn't let me see it for some reason. So and I never went back to it till now. I've seen it um, for this movie, which. It's got a very underwhelming resolution yeah. to all this, to the mystery being solved. So that doesn't help. I think there's a far more interesting movie that I thought I was getting. I was like, oh, this is going to be a movie where these two show up on the scene and we solve the case here. Like, I thought it was going to be this movie where they're in this building. Sean Connery, Wesley decides to pick up each other, they learn each other. But the whole movie is going to be going floor to floor and like solving this case in a couple hours like With like snake eyes yeah like something like that but no it doesn't and then it gets tedious and then has a convoluted mess up of like this footage and Tia Carrera is like this like supermodel that knows how to do computer artwork or something well, she has glasses because she has yeah she has glasses so like woohoo um Snipes has got some family shit going on with custody or whatever. Like it's it's really which is weird. really extraneous to all. Like it's just like yeah. there's so much yeah. stuff in this movie. They want us to believe like Sean Connery's gonna wind up bad or something. Like he's got a cool. He's got cool lines. He's got an interesting character that amounts to like nothing at the end of the day. Like there's some sort of intrigue. There, he, Snipes isn't learning off of him. Like he's not like it's it's a weird. Kind of, there's like 
yeah, there's no mentor aspect to this. It's there's just no like, mentor. There's no weird history or edge with Connery, but like it's written as such. And he, he, the man shows up. He does his job. He's fucking awesome. Like he's Sean Connery. I can see why he'd be interested in this part. It's just the yeah. story itself feels like because it's a yeah. Crichton book, right? It feels like mm-hmm. Hoffman and Crichton. They, it feels like they clashed in trying to like rework this. And and we've got a nostalgia now for like where people are like, oh, I don't make them like they used to in these like adult thriller type things, but they weren't all good. Um, They weren't all like, you know, because like we've seen, we had The Firm, we have In the Line of Fire, and now we have Rising Sun. Sometimes they're jade. Sometimes they're jade. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, this could have used that car chase. Uh, So It's true, fine. Sometimes they're color of night. Does yeah, that work better. There you go. <laughs> Which sure. is now in the Criterion Collection, by the way, sure. for the streaming yeah. channel. The streaming channel. So I, 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 let's get that's going to make that clear first here. It's not in the Criterion Collection. It's not part of the Criterion Collection. They haven't put it on disc yet. So yeah. I, I mean, I. They said, "Would you write the essay?" And I said, "No." The thing that helps this movie a lot is the actors, sure. um, and that really, that really helps a lot of it being entertaining and stuff, but it does start drawing out. Um, The mystery like starts interesting, but like the whole time, like it was so weird because it's like, this is going to end up being Ray wise, isn't it? It's going to end up being Ray wise because him and Carrie um, hair and their statures are so similar. And they do the, like the scene with the behind. They can't see when they're like having sex on the table. I'm like, it's gonna be freaking way Ray Wise. It's gonna be Ray Wise. It's gonna. And I was like, oh no, well, I guess not. Uh, it's not Ray Wise. Uh, but like the, the even the business and why people are doing stuff is convoluted and uninteresting and just I don't know. There, there's like there's a there's a skeleton that's interesting of this movie and a couple like characters written interesting, but it all it doesn't it, the the soup isn't very. I mean. You put some inner ingredients in it and some different spices, but I still just tasted regular chicken noodle soup when I. Side it. note: We should definitely do a commentary for Snake Eyes. Uh, yeah, oh, I love Snake Eyes. I also um, I don't, but it's an interesting movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so Scott, is it? Oh, uh, this is probably one that is. You know, I was looking forward to watching it because I saw it when I on opening weekend when I was thirteen, and I thought it was a solid picture. I even read the book. I I'm. I don't know how if I'm even alone in this, but the summer of '93, after seeing Jurassic Park, I read a shit ton of Crichton that summer. I get my hands on yeah, yeah. all this Crichton yep. dinosaurs. Oh my god, what's next? Yeah. Japanese businessman. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read Sphere and Congo. I didn't get to Rising Sun. I, I read basic almost everything. Um, and but watching it now, it's like I don't want to say, oh, it's dated badly or blah blah blah. Cause that's cliche, but yeah. It has. <laughs> I mean, it's it's I think the movie might have been better had it been a Japanese protagonist that was showing him the ropes mm-hmm. just because it's this weird skewed it's thing not, where not Sean Connery. Yeah, not noted Asian American <laughs> Sean Connery. Uh and again, the movie never pretends that he's anything but Sean Connery. But it also has this weird thing like, why is he the expert in Japanese culture? Um, expert, like they <laughs> shuffle past multiple Japanese men. Yeah. It's like he doesn't really Scottish man. <laughs> he doesn't really offer much in the way of wisdom or or you know advice that's so you know 
fantastical that oh you know he needs to be here and this crime won't get solved um, does, it, does tia carrera quote art of war or something at one point because then i'm thinking yep. like, oh, yeah she's gonna be in that yep. later that's another movie i forgot yeah. how little she was in the movie i remember having a much bigger part mm-hmm. but she's well, only in like two or three scenes crucial part though because she does this yeah <laughs> right um and i it was far less happens in the movie than i remembered yeah, uh, I mean, first of all, all the stuff that I remember is all in the third act. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, big fight scene where uh, God, what's how do you pronounce his last name? Help me here, Connery. Yes, <laughs> Snipes. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he gets you know beaten to death by his own people and has his throat slashed. That to me felt like something that happens halfway through the movie, but it's almost at the end. Yeah. And the big reveal of who he did dies it like why. twice in this movie. Yeah, yeah, he dies twice. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, the big reveal about who did it and why is I know they changed it from the book, so the villains weren't Japanese, but it it's it, it doesn't matter who did it because the the solution is so almost irrelevant. Based off um, what the it's going for, that's why, like you're saying, Brandon, like the skeleton of this movie, there's something there, but they don't know what to do with it to make yeah. it really interesting. Which is odd to me, given that you have Philip Kaufman, who knows how to do this sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, Brian, yeah. who knows how to structure plots around this sort of thing. So it's like um, I don't know what happened here, but it feels I, like I think it feels like a battle. Again, of, I don't want to, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but you know, remembering the book. The book was a relatively rote political thriller that was mostly Crichton waxing at large in a not necessarily xenophobic, jingoistic way about, you know, the theoretical encroaching business threat from Japan. Um, Again, I I would argue the book did not get into that much yellow peril, but maybe I was 13 and naive about that kind of thing. But it was like, okay, here's this bare bones plot. And now I'm going to, you know, monologue through these characters about how Japan does it versus how America does it and many of the ways in which Japan does it better. And here's what we need to deal with. We want to be as strong as them on the business stage in the same way that, that uh, main, I think it's mainframe. The, the is basically it's an air, it's a plane crash drama, but it's basically an excuse for him to explain everything he knows about the airline industry. Well, um, also I did read that Michael Crichton and Michael Bax, um, quit the film because Kaufman suggested one of the leads be black. Yep. <gasps> Read that. Well, I mean, what's the name of the airplane movie? Big Michael Summer. Yeah. Really? Uh, <laughs> that was that it was Airframe. Uh, airframe. Mayframe is real, real pivotal in the plot there. Yeah. Um but yeah. Changed it, the it, whole thing. <laughs> um and yeah, I just it's 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 there's it, there's not as much movie in this movie as I remember there being. And I sometimes when I will watch an older thriller like that, I will realize that to a certain extent, my nostalgia for the good old days is just that, that not every movie was as filled with movie as, say, Face Off, for example, because you have a lot of contact because you have a lot of character actors here. So, like, it kind of helps you, like, get past it. But it's like like, they're only doing so much. I tell can only stand outside of a building and say, this is what we're going to do so often before it starts getting boring. Yeah, he's got. Yeah, he's got a boring part. <laughs> he, he walks in and he talks tough because he's Harvey Keitel. I'm like, yeah. cool, all right. but like he doesn't really do anything in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's not as good as I remember it being. Alas, bow when you're bowed to. So I learned. I did watch uh, Just Cause for the first time with yeah. Connor Lawrence Fishburne. I like that movie. Yeah, that like, was not bad. I remember liking that back when it came out. 
it's got some neat twists in it that I didn't expect. So, so in the uh, realm of ninety Sean Connery mysteries, uh, that, that mm-hmm. that's the one that I'd speak up for in the summer of ninety five. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, Ta- Tatiana Patitz, uh, the victim in the movie, um, she passed away this year. Mm. Uh, oh, back in January. And I was like, oh, she, because I was like, what is she? She looks so familiar. What is she? And she's not in much at all. Like, she's more of a model. Um, and then I saw that she passed away. So I was like, oh, that's, that's sad. Um, and the computer art here they use is like really more advanced for 1990, uh, 93 than I thought. Yeah, this is a real precursor black hat. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. But yeah, Rising Sun. Um, yeah, this one I was looking forward to checking out. I'm not mad I checked it out, but like, just kind of, oh, same, like, same. That kind of difference. D- disappointed. Yeah, uh, this, this is the second least bad movie I watched this week. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so uh, let's see. Let's let's turn our uh, focus now from uh, this discussion to see how Rising Sun and the rest did at the box office, Scott. Uh, Rising Sun was a number one movie of the weekend, opening in 1,500 screens with $15.2 million. The $30 million budgeted, I think? Uh, let me check that. $40 million budgeted movie grossed $107 million worldwide by the end. Uh, 63 of that in North America alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Line of Fire would be number two again, with $8 million dropping just 29% for a $68 million 24-day total. Uh, the Firm uh, also dropping 29%. There's strong holdover business here with a couple yeah. exceptions. Um, earning $7 million to bring its total up to $125 million domestic. Free Willy would drop a whopping 18% in Weekend 3. $7 million for a... Hold 30- like the River Jordan. Indeed. $35.3 million in 17 days. Good old Jurassic Park is still sticking around. Crichton's number over. five. Crichton. Indeed. Yeah, that might be... That's the first time an author has had two movies in the top five. We could probably look that up. Yeah, probably. Because I know Nicholas... It was all the rage in the 80s. Did Stephen King had something like a couple back-to-backs? No, no. His films, I mean, hmm. he wasn't box office until like the 90s. Anyway, whatever. Um, a lot of 80s Stephen King movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of Stephen... Anyway, whatever. The 90s um, where his movies started going... Yeah, where people they got going to be treated as prestige all of a sudden. Well, the people didn't like Thinner as much as you did, but... Yeah. yeah. What was that? People didn't like Thinner as much as you did. <laughs> hey, I think the first half of Dreamcatcher is pretty good. It's the second half where it uh, shits the alien. It's all bad. Um Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, Jurassic Park, six point nine million minus eighteen percent, two hundred eighty-three million dollars after eight weekends in theaters. Uh, our newest, our other opener, Robin Hood Men in Tights, opened with just six point eight million dollars over three days, over a ten million dollar Wednesday to Sunday opening weekend. Uh, the film would earn. <laughs> Thirty-six million domestic on a budget of. Sorry, I had this open, but then I closed it. Robin Hood and a hundred million in rentals. Maybe <laughs> a twenty million dollar budget made seventy-two million worldwide. So they were very happy with it. 
Um, and he says that Spaceballs and Robin Hood Men in Tights were it's the silly. most rented uh, yeah. pictures he's ever mm-hmm. made. Uh, Poetic Justice, unfortunately, took a 57% drop Ooh. in Weekend 2, earning $5 million for a $21 million 10-day total. Sleepless in Seattle, still sticking around, $4.9 million minus 15% for a $90 million six-weekend total. Coneheads dropped 50%, 3.5% for a 14.4 over 10 days. And in 10th place, another stakeout, dropping 35% for 3.5 million for an underwhelming 11.7 million after 10 days. Uh, elsewhere in the top 10, or the top whatever. Um, so I married an axe murderer, underwhelmed with just $3.5 million in 1,300 screens. It would eventually earn approximately uh, $12 million on, I believe, a, it wasn't a particularly expensive movie. 55. Uh, what was that? <laughs> 55. Yes. Uh, no, it would, I don't know, it cost $20 million. So it was a flop. Unlike the first Austin Powers, which was actually a theatrical kit. Yes. Not a big one, but yes. It paid $67 million on a 15 budget. Ooh, the Love Guru made more than So I Married Max Murray. Producer Demi Moore was very happy all three times. <laughs> um, Elsewhere in the top ten, how the where the fuck is Aladdin? Why is Aladdin in the top four fifteen now? It's back. Uh-huh. Put, it's back. Shit, it was into seven hundred ninety-eight theaters. What the hell is going on here? Hmm. What, what is Disney up to? <laughs> Warner Brothers will release something. They're, They're trying like, to. Oh, that's what, yeah, Disney's up for a fuck you, Tom and Jerry. Said yep. Disney. Miramax yep. was sniffing Miramax. <laughs> don't don't forget who the boss is now. Uh, that, I don't think they own Miramax yet. Uh, $1.7 million in its 38th weekend of release. Meanwhile, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 16th place in its 2,902nd week of release. <laughs> oh, wow. Earning $1.247 million, which might be a record for a 2,902nd weekend release gross. (laughs) I'd have to verify that. I'm sorry? Maybe they double build Snow White and Aladdin. Possibly. You know what? That makes sense. Mm. Um... Let's see. Oh, Tom and Jerry, speaking of Tom and Jerry, opened in 15th place with $1.25 million. It would eventually earn... I think it did like six million on a six million budget. So yay, I guess. Yippee skippy. Um well the ads no, were three million on a three million, basically. Um and that is it for the box office in terms of stuff. Groundhog Day is in the top twenty again with huh. in weekend twenty-five. That opened uh early February, late January of nineteen ninety-three, one weekend after certified golf class. Speaking of a good spoof movie, National Lampoon's loaded weapon one. As we all know, July twenty eighth is Canadian Groundhog Day, so that's probably why. Yes, of course. Right. They're probably um, probably doubling it up with axe murder or something in drive-ins or something. Yeah, Sony, yeah. And that's it for the box office. All right. Well, that'll do it for this weekend. Uh, That was July 30th through August 1st of 1993. Scott and Aaron, thank you for joining me again as we, oh, it was a tougher one to get through, I guess, uh, surprisingly, uh, though I enjoyed the Max Murderer movie. before we head out, uh, Scott, where can people keep up with you? I'm at therap.com and I'm on Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. All right. And Aaron. I'll be performing a podcast-related beat poetry at Poets Corner in L.A. Um, I uh, write for and, Leo. <laughs> and your TikTok. 
Yeah, that TikTok that I was starting. Um, I write for Leave Entertainment for movie reviews, Weiss is Blue for Blu-ray and Criterion reviews. I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4, and I host a podcast out now with Aaron and Abe. We talk about the weekly new movie releases, and we probably just talked about Barbie and Oppenheimer, um, which uh, Scott definitely heard all the dialogue in one of them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I opt for Oppenheimer. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brand4KUHD. Written work at YSOBlue.com. Next week, uh, we got we go on a hunt for the one-armed man, the meteor man, uh, and the boyfriend man is back. Uh, all that and more as the summer of 93 at 30 continues. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of and News Themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.